Good morning. Let's take our Bibles out. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 12. So as we begin reading in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now if you please skip to verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, some of that stuff that might seem a little unusual to us, where it talks about them being betrothed or engaged and then a divorce, and it's because their customs were a little bit different than ours. When they entered into an engagement, it was an official covenant to break that covenant, to actually require a divorce, even to break that betrothal or engagement period. Now, as we continue in chapter 2, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Elise and I went to our first uh, Christmas concert this last week. We went over to the celebration at Indus, and we thought they did a wonderful job over there. Of course, tonight is our own Christmas program here. Our elementary program at the high school is Monday night, tomorrow night, and then a week from that is the senior high program as well. So Christmas, obviously, is a time where there's a lot of singing involved and a lot of programs to go to in a lot of different ways that we can be encouraged to celebrate as we look at the birth of God's Son coming into this world. It's definitely a time where there's a lot of singing, a lot of harmony. And uh, that's what I want to focus on here this morning. As I look at Matthew's Gospel, I see uh, a harmony. He's showing a harmony between Jesus and a lot of different events. You know, Matthew's written to the Jews. Mark's written to the Romans. Luke's written to the Greek. John's written to the world. But Matthew's written to the Jews. Now, the Jews would have had kind of a laundry list of things that they would need to see somebody be in harmony with in order to be the Messiah. And that's exactly what Matthew is presenting. He's presenting that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's presenting it to the Jews, and he's showing them that Christ is in harmony with these different elements that the Messiah would need to fulfill. 
And so as we consider that this morning, I would like to consider the idea of this Christmas harmony. Well, the first thing that we see in this Christmas harmony is that Jesus is in harmony with the promises. The passage begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The the Messiah would have needed to be in the lineage of David and in the lineage of Abraham because these two individuals represent something, and that is the promises that were given to them. We have the promise that was given to Abraham. It says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That Messiah that was to come would be the fulfillment of that promise, that covenant that God made with Abraham. And we know that was just the first time that God gave the covenant to Abraham. He repeated it, established it several more times through the book of Genesis and Abraham's lifetime. We even have that time where he went through that ceremony where they took the parts of the animals and they made a, uh, separated them and made a path between them. And God went through there ratifying his covenant with Abram. But... God not only made a covenant or a promise to Abraham that he would fulfill, but he made a promise to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is a king of Israel, and David wanted to make a house for God. He said, we've been in the promised land for a long time now. We're all living in homes. God's still living in a tent. Remember back in the days of Moses when the children of Israel wandered for 40 years living in tents in the wilderness. And God himself had what was called a tabernacle. The word tabernacle means tent. And so God had his own tent and the priests would manage that tent and set it up and take it down and carry it with them. And and so whenever they set up someplace, they would set up God's tent and then everybody else's tents would be surrounding it. And David got to the point, he said, look, we all live in houses now, I have for years, I'm going to make God a house. Well, God sent a message to David and said, you're not going to make me a house. David, I'm going to make your house. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God promises, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so David had a promise from God that it would be his descendant that would sit upon his throne forever. Again, pointing to Christ. In fact, as we look forward to the return of Christ, that's what he's going to come and do. He's going to come and he's going to sit on the throne of his father David and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years in the millennium that is talked about within the book of Revelation and other places. So this passage is meant to establish the fact that Jesus Christ was qualified to be the Messiah so far because he was in harmony with the promises made to Abraham and to David. Now there is a bit of a speed bump in the passage and we find that when we read down through the genealogy and get to a man named Jeconiah. He's sometimes called Caniah in the Bible. But this Jeconiah was a king of Israel, a wicked king. And he was the king that was in charge when they were carried off into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It was during his reign. He'd reigned for about three years and ten days when God had given them over to their enemies and and they were carried off into the Babylonian captivity. In Jeremiah chapter 22, we find that the Lord told them this through Jeremiah. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldean. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. 
A few verses later, in verse 30, it says, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So there's this little problem that some people bring up, and that is, is the lineage of Christ disqualified from reaching to David because it goes through Jeconiah? One way that some people get around that is to look to the one listed in Luke. Luke lists a different lineage through Mary's ancestors that goes back to David, but through Nathan. And it misses Jeconiah. I'm not exactly sure how it misses Jeconiah because it lists Shiltiel and Zerubbabel, which are the child and grandchild of Jeconiah. But it traces them through this man named Neri, which nobody knows who he is. We have nothing left that describes him. But nevertheless, the, the, the lineage, where, whether this uh, Shiltiel was also a legal heir to Neri, we don't know what the case was there. But this lineage does not go through Jeconiah. And so some people claim that, well, since Joseph was Jesus' legal father, but not his biological father, and Mary, was because of the virgin birth, that should actually be traced through Mary, then it should go through Luke's genealogy that he lists. And so that's how the problem is remedied. But I don't think that that's what's going on here. It is obvious that Matthew is putting this genealogy here to show that Christ has, through his stepfather Joseph, a legal connection to David and Abraham so that he is qualified to be the Messiah. Matthew is not saying, look, here's Joseph's lineage, but because Jeconiah is in there, he's disqualified, so I want to refer you to Luke. He's not saying that. He's making the case that Jesus' lineage does qualify him as the Messiah. He was not concerned, obviously, with Jeconiah. There's a number of reasons why that might be the case. First of all, if you look at early rabbinic literature, for example, in the Talmud or the Midrash, many rabbis have stated that Jeconiah, once he was imprisoned in Babylon, he repented before God and so that the curse was removed. That's a possibility. Because when you look at it, there's other elements of the curse that seem to be removed as well. He was a father of children, even though he was said to let this man be written down as childless. Now, it does not say that he was childless. It says let him be written down or considered as childless. The point being that none of his children would sit on his throne. The, another part of that was that he would never succeed in his days, whereas in the end, you do see what might be counted as a measure of success because he is eventually released out of prison and shown favor by the king of Babylon. In fact, favor above other kings that were in similar positions as his, although he would not return to the land and rule any longer as king, and neither would his children. I think another indication of it might be found within Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, in that phrase, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne. That statement, in his days, might more clearly mean in his lifetime. And as you look back at the previous part of the passage, it was clearly dealing with the children of Israel getting carried off into captivity. Him and the mother who bore him, probably referring to the nation, being carried off into captivity. We know that that captivity lasted 70 years, and then they would come back, as God had even told them before they left. And so it was looked at as a temporary curse. Now we do see that the curse was temporary, because in Haggai chapter 2, verse 23, it says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel, who is the son of Jeconiah. So Jeconiah's children did not occupy the throne. 
But his grandson, this Zerubbabel, would become the governor when they get to move back into Israel. And he would be the one that would rebuild the temple. And in fact, the building of the temple done under Zerubbabel would last longer than both the temple of Solomon and the temple of Herod put together. So Zerubbabel got to be involved in quite a feat. But the, the language here is the same. Remember when God took Jeconiah out of being king, what did he tell Jeconiah? Even though you were a signet ring on my finger, the signet ring was a ring that uh, was the symbol of who you are. And it was an authoritative thing. And God said, even if you were the signet ring on my finger, I would tear you off and hurl you away. Now he reverses that with Zerubbabel. With Zerubbabel, he said, you will be like a signet ring on my finger. And that, that can't be a mistake that the language is so the same, so similar. And so we see that for whatever reason, whether it was because of a repentance that happened on Jeconiah's part and the curse was undone, or the fact that the curse was just associated with the captivity and would be over as the captivity came back, Jeconiah's children did not occupy his throne, but his grandson would become the governor. And so obviously that curse was either temporary in nature or lifted because of repentance. But at any rate, it does not affect Christ. And how do we know that? Because Matthew can confidently list the genealogies of Jesus Christ, even boldly proclaiming Jeconiah's name within that genealogy, and obviously did not anticipate any rebuttal or any questioning that it would qualify him as the Messiah. But it does not appear that the first century Jewish people struggled with it at all. So we see Jesus in harmony with the promises that were made to Abraham and David. Not only do we see him in harmony with those, but we see that Jesus is in harmony with the prophecies. All through the passage, he keeps quoting Scripture. To begin with, he quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so he focuses on the person of Christ and recognizes that this is not the son of Joseph. It is actually the son of God, that Jesus is the virgin born. Son of God. That's why he's called Emmanuel. The virgin birth is such an important doctrine because if you don't have the virgin birth, then you have the son of Joseph and the son of Mary. You don't have the son of God. But with Mary as a virgin, then and the Holy Spirit as the Father, as God as the Father, now you have the son of God. And so that fulfills that prophecy that was spoken seven, eight hundred years before through the prophet Isaiah. And then not only that, but when the wise men come seeking the Christ, they go to Herod. And Herod and all of Jerusalem's in an uproar. And the reason all of Jerusalem's in an uproar is because Herod's in an uproar. Herod referred to himself as the king of the Jews. And so when the wise men come and say, hey, where's the one that is born king of the Jews? They're basically asking Herod, where is your replacement? And if you know anything about Herod, it's not very good to have Herod stirred up. The Herods of the Bible do dangerous things when they're a little bit nervous. And so all of Jerusalem is nervous right along with them. But as they ask him this question, where is the one to be born that is born king of the Jews? Herod summons the scribes. In other words, these are the Bible teachers of the day. And he says, where is the one supposed to be born that's supposed to come? And they say, Bethlehem. And they quote from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus has prophecies about him that are hundreds of years, even thousands of years old. 
that speak to his coming. Did you know in the last day of Christ's life, he fulfilled like 25 different prophecies that were, many of them very specific. Things of what they would give him to drink when he was on the cross or what they would do with his clothes as they mocked him. Very specific prophecies about Christ and they all became fulfilled in him. And so we see the fulfillment of prophecy. You see, this is something that is very big it's, it's, and is showing the connections. Saying, look back to the promises that were given way back to Abraham and then later to David. We see a progression and they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Look back at the prophecies of the different prophets of Isaiah and Micah and different prophets and they're fulfilled in Christ. And so he's showing that Jesus is in harmony with all of these things. The prophecies often had a current event that they were dealing with, and then also a projected event as well, something that would happen farther down the line, up into the life of Christ. We see that in First Peter, as he refers to the work of the prophets. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, in inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ And the subsequent glories. You see, the point he's making is that when they prophesied, they could see maybe the more contemporary events that were associated with the prophecy. But they were curious. They could tell there was something more. There was something distant, something yet future that this directed them to as well. But they couldn't figure out what it was. And so they studied intently their own writings to try to figure out what was involved. When is this talking about? What is happening? Who is it referring to? And it was the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It goes on to say in verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So you see, Peter's point is those prophets were not just ministering to them and the people of their time, preparing them for the Messiah, but they were also giving those prophecies that we would end up recognizing as the Messiah. And when we look and we see these things that were predicted so far in the past, and specific things in them coming fulfilled within the person of Jesus Christ, it's an amazing thing. Jesus is in harmony with the prophets. But then not only is he in harmony with the promises and the prophets he's also in harmony with the proclamations there's two different proclamations within this passage and there's more if we expand to the other gospels the proclamations that we see in here are the proclamations of the angel to joseph telling joseph that mary pregnancy was uh, an act of god and that he should not be afraid to take her unto his wife and then also the message of the magi as they come to visit christ and we see these amazing things taking place well, first of all, I think it would have taken a proclamation similar to the, an angel or something like that to get Joseph on board. Joseph is a righteous man and a faithful man, and he finds out that his young wife is pregnant. And he knows it's not by him because they have not been involved physically. He wants to be gentle about it. He wants to be quiet about it. Uh, so he decides he's going to divorce her quietly rather than making a public spectacle out of her or rather than even having her put to death as it could have been. He decides to deal with it quietly and divorce her quietly. Well, this angel comes to him and says, you don't need to do that. Don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife, because 
that child that is within her is put there by God. She is that virgin birth. And that gets Joseph on board. We also see the proclamation of these wise men who they come and after watching the stars and they travel from the east and go to all this effort, that speaks of amazing things happening within this infant child. And so we see amazing proclamations to get our attention. I don't really consider myself overly gullible. I usually am fairly skeptical when people tell me fantastic stories. I kind of want to see some some proof or some validation to it. I'm not quick to believe those kinds of things. And i got to admit, if I was in Joseph's place and this young gal came and said, well, I'm pregnant, but it's... I uh, haven't been unfaithful. It's it's from it's from God. God this, did this to me. I would be skeptical. But you know, when you start seeing all these different things, when an angel shows up, when shepherds come in, when these wise men travel, when uh, all these different amazing things start to gel with a story that shows there's something unusual going on here. There's something peculiar. This is not your average and ordinary birth. Then it starts to carry a little bit of clout. And then when you watch that child and he grows up and you see this person who had these fantastic stories around them as a as an infant and you see this person grow up and then that person is able to walk on water and turn water into wine and calm storms and and cast out demons and heal the sick and cleanse lepers and cause the blind to see and the lame to walk he's able to take one small boy's lunch and feed over 5,000 people with that lunch and he's even able to raise the dead on a number of occasions Well, now when you throw all that stuff in there, now it all makes sense that there were these amazing things happening around his birth. It's it's confirmation and proof of the truth of these things that happened. And you see, Joseph needed that proclamation from that angel. I think we need that proclamation from that angel. The Jewish people were given the proclamation from the wise men that really got everybody's attention, said, hey, something's going on here. I think we needed that proclamation from those wise men as well. And so we see that so far, Jesus is in harmony. It's a beautiful Christmas harmony. Jesus is in harmony with the promises given to Abraham and to David. He's in harmony with the prophecies that were given over these hundreds and thousands of years that pointed to who he would be. He's in harmony with the proclamations of the angels and the wise men as those are recorded for us in Scripture as well. We're seeing this beautiful Christmas harmony. But finally, I'd say we see Jesus is in harmony with the plan. And the reason that I say the plan is because now it's, it's, it's becoming something huge. It's all these things coming together. The testimonies of the promises and the prophecies and the proclamations. And not only that, you've got to add one more thing now, and that deals with the wise men. This star, this amazing star. Now, what exactly was the star? I'm not certain. Was it just a miraculous appearance of a bright light in the sky that God used to direct the wise men to it? Possibly. Or was it just part of creation, part of nature? I remember Dell showing a film in a church years ago about the Bethlehem star. And this guy took software that NASA uses. Apparently NASA has developed software that you can put yourself in any place on the earth and any date any date in our history, and you can see the sky on that day from that place in history. And he went back to about the time that Christ would have been born or shortly thereafter as these wise men would have been traveling, and he punched in a date, and he sees a place where there is what was called the king's planet, 
and the king's star coming right by it and stopping and then going back the other way, if I remember correctly. Well, if that's the case, that's amazing. Either way, it's amazing. Either it's a miracle from God, and we've got this light in the, in the heavens pointing the way to the Christ, and we don't know what this light came from or where it is. Or we have built right into the fabric of creation a star that at just the right time is going to be at just the right place and is going to stand out to these wise men and point to the position and the place of Jesus Christ. You see, the whole plan of God all the way back from before the foundations of the world is all coming together. The promises, the prophecies, the proclamation, and and creation and nature itself all coming together in this one amazing plan of God. You know, it got me thinking about stars and stuff a little bit. Did you know that you can name a star? If you look online, there's a place in in the United States anyway, for $35, you can name a star. In fact, they have have it categorized. You get several different things in this kit that comes with it. You get an official certificate with the name that you picked for the star. You get a map that shows the location of that thing and some software that comes with it. Or you can even upgrade it. For the $34, they have the deluxe package, I guess it is. And then for $89, you can name a supernova so you can get one that's brighter, maybe a little bit easier for you to pick out. For $49 a piece, you can get twin stars. And so two of you can have stars that are kind of close together in proximity. So celebrate the relationship that you have with one another. Now, I don't know if the relationship goes south down in the future, and I don't know what happens to the stars there. You know, actually, they do have a guarantee. They do have a guarantee that if your star ever falls, that they'll replace it. They'll give you another star free of charge. And so there's, there's that that goes with it, too. But, you know, dealing with this thing with Jesus is so much more than just naming of the stars. The, the heavenly bodies even are on page with this plan, focusing on this birth of this one who is the Son of God, who is God with us. We see... Even nature itself testifying to this coming together of this grand plan of God. And you know that's exactly what it says in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, right at the perfect time, in the right place, with even the star of heaven pointing to that place, the plan of God comes together. And that is a beautiful Christmas harmony. In these events, we see that Jesus is in harmony with the promises given to Abraham and to David as he fulfills those covenants, as God keeps those promises. Jesus is in harmony with the prophecies of the prophets that went on before. And it's amazing to read things that were written hundreds of years before that are so vividly Christ. Jesus is in harmony with the proclamations of the angels and the wise men. And Jesus is in harmony with the plan as we see the plan of God all come together in its fulfillment in Christ. And why does that happen? As Galatians says, 
to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, this Christmas harmony was given to bring us in harmony with God. God sent His Son into the world to make us sons in His family.